0: book uh, we are finishing up uh, almost the will be two-thirds of the way through next week we will have a special uh, program going we will not have our Bible class in here uh, everybody will be in here for the program and then we'll have three weeks left for. Classes on uh, finishing up Isaiah, and I intend to look at those lessons. The first one will deal with what Isaiah says about Christ being the prophet, priest, and king. Uh, it's impossible to cover all three of those, and one will look at the prophet, his foretelling of the prophet. The next lesson will deal with God's judgment on the wicked that is discussed in Isaiah. Some pretty pretty blunt. Candid statements there, and then our final lesson. I want to draw a focus on Isaiah's message about God's judgment on the righteous. And Isaiah is a book of hope. And as we discuss God's judgment on the righteous, it will uh, it will even cause us to have a greater hope. And so that's basically the uh, the plans that we have for the class. Uh, from this point on. Today we're looking at predictive prophecy, which is in itself a phenomenal topic and one that uh, in, in no way can one lesson exhaust. In fact, an entire quarter could not exhaust predictive prophecies of the Bible. A very interesting study, and it just validates the inspiration and the message that the Bible has for us. But we'll spend just a few moments this morning talking about the predictive prophecies in the book of Isaiah and uh, draw some conclusions to that. Let me uh, tell you that we had a, a good week last week as we were, were dealing with sorting some of the miscellaneous medical supplies that will be shipped over into Ukraine, a lot of uh, Many hours went into that, and a number of you were involved in that, and we appreciate that. Uh, we need to work, I think, on a time schedule to see where we might be able to generate a little more involvement and, and uh, see what's a more convenient time. But during that course of the week, we had calls from uh, Kazakhstan, we've, uh, Nigeria, Honduras, I forget, but uh, they. They are are desiring some work and they wanted to express their appreciation to this congregation for all that has been done. I wish I had the time to tell you all the good things that are being done in the name of the, the Lord's church and especially the church that assembles here. Let's begin with prayer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful for this day that you've set aside for our assemblies together in worship and for the opportunity to study the Bible and to be encouraged by the presence of our brothers and sisters. We're thankful, Lord, that there are those that are visiting that have come to be with us in the assemblies today, and we pray that they'll be encouraged, and we pray, Father, that as we continue our study of the book of Isaiah, that we will look at your word and apply our lives in a very diligent way to be submissive and obedient to what you ask us to do. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. And it's through Jesus we pray. Amen. I remember, and you probably did too, uh, I would, uh, up in Huntsville, I'd get the Huntsville Times, and uh every every New Year's remember Jean Dixon would come out with here's what's gonna happen. You remember that? You know, I I, I never did take that nonsense, but I, I wanted to see what was going on. And uh you read the history of her her uh insights And it's really amazing that people would would believe what it was. And if I remember correctly, I think in the Huntsville Times, there'd be the daily column that she would have. You know, and and here is what she gained. And she supposedly got that because a gypsy had given her a crystal ball is where it all started. And uh, she was able to, you know, hit a few lucky guesses. And um, statisticians, I remember at UAH, I took a class. Oh, it was one of those horrible classes. You never to statistics. And if you've ever had to deal with statistics, then, uh, you know, it was difficult for me to say and even more difficult to uh, to be in there. I happened to have a professor who at that time, Nixon was in hot water and they were going through. And, and so he'd work out all these probabilities on what impeachment was going to do and what this and, and you know, here I am sitting in there and, uh, I'm thinking, what am I doing in this place? Uh, but I survived or rather I endured that class. Uh, don't remember what, uh, what grade I got. I think he gave it on a bell curve or some kind of curve like that because of the, uh, probabilities issues. But anyway, uh, in, involved in probabilities, and we'll talk about some of this later, uh, some, somebody came up with this idea of the Gene Dixon index factor. And what that basically meant is if you make one lucky guess in a thousand, then you have credibility that's amazing. And so she happened to, uh, to make an absurd announcement that there was going to be a terrorist activity in a certain, certain year, and uh, it was during the Munich Massacre, if you'll remember that, and so they, they, they said, well, this woman has amazing insight as to what's going to happen, but to me, the, the, uh, the crowning point of her prophetic ability, as she lay dying in a hospital in New York, just before she died, she said, I saw that this would happen. And so, and so that was the, the crowning point, you know. Her last words were a breath of prophetic uh, certainty. I am going to die. I saw this happening. Well, uh, the world has been occupied. Breathing space has been taken by certain individuals who think that they have tremendous insight and prophetic abilities and she's just one of many that uh, that have uh, you know been a part of that but it's very important that we understand that there is a difference between the prophetic prophecies of the Bible and the foolishness of the prophetic prophecies of individuals in the world that think that they can look into uh, uh, a bowl of bones, or they can look into a crystal ball, or they can look at clouds, uh, or the the wrinkles on your hands, and be able to discern what is right and what is wrong. God has given us a very simple test, a prophecy in, the, in Deuteronomy 18, 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, then that thing which the Lord—that ha- is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptively. You shall not be afraid of him. Here's the biblical test of a prophet. It's not the 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 amount of probability. Okay, well, you're right one out of a thousand times, or you're right on a thing that really has headline news. No, the thing that the Bible says distinguishes you as a prophet, you have 100% fulfillment. What you have said will come true, has come true, and it's verifiable and it's validated. It is something that is easily recorded as an actual fact. Well, when the prophet claims to be a spokesman of God, this is what you need to expect from him. And everything is to be fulfilled, and that's the standard to determine what is right and what is wrong. Now, as you look at, at prophecy, there's some critical points that are associated with uh, predictive prophecy. All right, the first point is that of the credibility of the prophet, and that's what Deuteronomy pointed out. If the prophet speaks of something that is going to come true, and it comes true you know that he is a true prophet of God. He has uh, unquestioned credibility. The second thing is that this predictive prophecy will be a confirmation of the Word of God because what the prophet has said comes, uh, Deuteronomy said, it's from God. So you know that it is the Word of God. It confirms the Word of God. And as you put the predictive prophecies in and frame them in the context of the coming of Christ, then you see that the predictive prophecies give you absolute confidence in the deity of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ was not just a prophet uh, as Islam says. He's just another prophet. Muhammad's a prophet and so the two are Or equal, no, no, not so. Uh, We also know that he is not just an extraordinary teacher. Although some would like to say, you know, Christ is a good moral teacher. No, you can't say that because Christ said, I am God. You can't say exclusively, he's just a teacher, he's not God. Because a good moral person isn't going to tell such a flagrant lie. And so you have that that point where you have to decide who is Jesus Christ? Is he just a good moral person? Is he just an inspired, you know, mortal thinking individual? Or is he the word of God? Is he the, the son of God? Does he speak the word of God? And this is where predictive prophecy helps us to focus that here is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is the one that Isaiah spoke about as the coming Messiah. Predictive prophecy in the Bible unfolds a, a number of amazing details and minuscule descriptions of the plans that God had. It's as though you open the Bible, and here's a blueprint of the scheme of salvation. Uh, you, You see it in Genesis, but then over here in Revelation, you see it fulfilled. How did that take place? The Bible took centuries to write. Multiple authors, 40 authors wrote, and they write in one cohesive plan. That testifies to the inspiration of the Bible. An interesting fact is that there are 332 distinctive predictions about Christ. Now, I didn't count that. That comes by a fellow by the name of, of Canon Lyddon. Uh, he wrote a book called The Basis of Christian Faith back in 1964, and he said, here is the number, 332 distinctive prophetic predictions about Jesus Christ. Well, the apostles, they don't give us the number, but the apostles do reference to predictive prophecies about Jesus Christ. The apostles used these to establish the Messiahship of Jesus. There were two main arguments in in the apostolic preaching about Jesus, showing that he's Son of God. Number one is resurrection. You can't be an ordinary man and be raised from the dead as he was to die no more. Number two, the apostles said Jesus Christ is distinctive. He is the Son of God because of the predictive prophecies that were made. Acts 2, 30, 36. Therefore, let the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, in the context of Acts 2, you have reference to the predictive prophecies in regard to Jesus Christ. The entire ministry of Jesus Christ was written Centuries before he lived. Brother Dehoff uh, has uh, a book, Why We Believe the Bible, and he makes this statement. A complete history of the life of Christ was written more than 800 years before he was born. Now that's taking a blueprint and, and you're saying here is what's going to happen. you got minute details, specific events and factors that are involved and they all fit together. You don't need any caulk to cover up the cracks whenever the mess, you know. I, I use a lot of caulk when I work. You can cover it and, and paint it, and nobody sees the difference. Doug might, but I wouldn't. But anyway, there's nothing in there. It's all perfectly joined together. And that's the amazing thing about the predictive prophecies of Jesus Christ. 332 prophecies, they were used by the apostolic preaching to verify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that gives us a basis of hope. The prophecy that is fulfilled, you can believe it. You can absolutely believe it. You don't have to take a leap of faith. You don't have to say, well, the Bible says it, so I've got to believe that. No, the Bible says it so that you may know, 1 John 5, 13, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. It's not a leap of faith. And and this faith is established on, on very specific points that are made. The uh, the points, as we pointed out uh 332 predictive prophecies and of this uh, here's an interesting point there are 61 that are very specific major predictions as to his life and his death Uh, and these present undeniable uh, evidence for the, the mission of Jesus Christ the predictive prophecies are significant and Isaiah is the most referenced author of predictive prophecies in the New Testament. That's why I want to spend a lesson this morning talking about the predictive prophecies that we have in in the Bible. Let me go back here. The last point there, Isaiah strengthens our faith and encourages hope for our Christian lives because he was writing centuries before Jesus Christ would come. Okay, let's look at some of these These things that are highlighted by Isaiah. First of all, we have the predictive prophecy about the beginning of the church. The the term Zion is used in reference to Jerusalem. Now you need to go back in Old Testament history and you'll see that it's first referenced in 2 Samuel 5, 7 as David captured the area. But Zion kind of morphed its meaning into being all the realm, the territory around Jerusalem. And then it came to reference just Jerusalem itself. And so whenever you read there about Zion in prophecy, you're really talking about the city of Jerusalem. And Isaiah specifically uh, prophesied that the law was to go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 and verse 3. This is a very specific thing. And it was written centuries before. How would they know that? How would they know that the law was going to go forth from Jerusalem and that the word of the Lord would be preached from Jerusalem? That's the beginning point. Isaiah specifically pinpoints the origin of the kingdom of God and the beginning of his Reign in the kingdom. Isaiah 2.2 says that that kingdom would be chief of the mountains raised above the hills and all the nations will stream into it. You read Acts chapter 2 and you read about the first gospel sermon that was preached and then you read the consequent uh, ramifications of the gospel. All nations flow into the kingdom of God and Isaiah said... It's going to start in Jerusalem, and it did. Isaiah helped us to pinpoint a reference point to determine where and when the kingdom of God would begin. Now, this is amazing because there are folks today that think the kingdom of God has not been established. They think the kingdom is going to be in a thousand-year period in literal Jerusalem, the millennial reign. They get that from Revelation 20 and and then by twisting a number of other passages. But they claim what we have today is not the kingdom age, it's the church age. Well, that distinction is not made by God. The kingdom and the church are synonymous. They are the same entities. And so we need to understand Isaiah was telling us, here then is a reference point as to where and when the kingdom was to be established, and it all looks forward to Acts chapter 2. I'm sure that you have heard a number of sermons that would take the Old Testament and, and the prophets there and they would point to the establishment of the New Testament church in Acts chapter 2. Wonderful lessons. And and, and the church was promised, the church was prophesied, and the church was provided. Remember those three points? You've heard them preached I'm sure a number of times but it all comes down to the point that Isaiah is making right here Luke 24 47 Jesus said uh, that he told his disciples the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem Jesus was quoting Isaiah chapter 2 in regard to this God fulfilled the prophetic beginning of His kingdom. His kingdom began Acts chapter 2. And, and there are so many passages that point to that fact. And that points to the fact that the church is the kingdom. The two are synonymous entities. And Isaiah says it was going to begin in Jerusalem. From that beginning point in Acts chapter 2, the church would teach and preach the word of God first to the people of Jerusalem, then to Judea and then to the uttermost parts of the world. But look at another point. The prophecy of Isaiah says it really takes more than years to be pleasing to Christ. Uh, the people in Isaiah's time were obstinate. Oh, they'd they they'd just irritate you. Uh, they were so stubborn. You know, you'd <laughs> I remember watching my granddaddy one time plow with with a team of mules. And those those mules got up on a the wrong side of the haystack that day, I believe, or something, because they they were honry as they could be. And he got so aggravated he took a two by four and walloped one upside the head. Didn't do much to the mule. I don't think it changed his course at all and his his attitude of that day. But that I'm I'm reminded of these people. You know, here are these people that they are so stubborn. And they are so headstrong that you can can hit them with anything and it's not going to change them at all. And that's exactly what Isaiah said. That's what's going to await the the people of God. Isaiah would tell the people that hope awaited the faithfulness he'd be met by insensitive hearts and dull ears. Isaiah 6 verses 9 through 10 shows that. Isaiah's prophecies would not be understood by those in Judea. They would hear, but their, their mind was somewhere off. They didn't really want to understand. And those that heard Christ would not really hear Christ at all. In fact, they would listen to him so that they could pick apart and they could could conjecture in their own mind some kind of charges that they could could twist, so that they could eliminate him. How tragic is the reality that even today, there are those that have ears but hear not. And and this was a prophecy. These refuse to accept the clear teachings of God's truth. And in our day, there are those that seek to redefine, refashion, uh, redesign the commandments of God, so that they become more comfortable and more convenient. Well, that's what Isaiah encountered and he said that will happen in the time. Christ used it in, in Matthew uh, 13 and 15. Christ said that's the same. The prophet said that this was going to happen. All right, let's look at another point. The virgin birth. Isaiah 7, 14. You begin looking at the... Uh, The turn of the uh, the 18th century to the 19th century, and even in the 20th, you had people that wanted to deny the supernatural elements of the Bible, Uh, especially in the early years of the 1900s. You had folks that denied miracles, they denied uh, the deity of Christ, the inspiration of the Bible, and, and just everything. One of the, the main targets that they had was the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and um, they would would do everything that they could to excuse in fact some of the translations of the Bible in Isaiah 7:14 removed the word virgin and they put there a young woman because of the, the prejudice, the bias they had towards supernatural events they said, This is not going to happen. This cannot happen. So Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 predicted that the Savior would be born of a virgin. Well, that's a concept that could not be imagined, but this would be the the sign of the greatest proof of the supernatural character of Jesus Christ. And this prophecy was fulfilled when Mary conceived and gave birth to the Savior. And that stated for us, In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, and Luke chapter 1, and verse 34. And the Lord, if you have any question as to whether something is right or wrong, just look at the interpretation the Bible gives it. The Lord said, here is the application. The prophet said, a virgin would conceive. You you can't get any clearer than that, I don't think, because here you have the Lord saying exactly what it was. Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 7, verse 14, foretold a feat that no other man has accomplished, and really which no mortal mind could ever imagine. There would be a physical birth as a consequence of a spiritual father. Now, the uh, theological (coughs) impact of that is very significant. Christ was to be both God and man. How would he accomplish that? Only through the virgin birth. You remove the virgin birth, you remove there the entire deity of Jesus Christ. And that's what people in the world want to do. But Isaiah gave us a prophetic text that says, There's no way Jesus is the Son of God. Here's another interesting point of prophecy. Isaiah said that Jesus Christ was going to be a stumbling stone. The prophecy here says that Christ would be a rock to stumble over. And the one who was to be a sanctuary actually would be a stumbling, at least to some. Some would find him as a sanctuary, a sanctuary of hope, a sanctuary of salvation, a sanctuary by which they can find security in this world. But others would stumble. They wouldn't accept that. They would deny that. And so Isaiah says, the coming Savior, he will be a stumbling stone to some. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. There Isaiah prophesied by God, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Well, that's the security for those that would see him as a sanctuary, but others would see him as a rock. And Christ, as he came, he fulfilled this prophecy. Because in his teaching, as you read through the gospel narratives about Jesus, you read there that he caused many to stumble and falter and and even leave him. John 6, remember? Upon this saying, many turned away and they stopped following him. See, they, they found him to be a stumbling stone. Whenever Christ was taken to the temple in Luke chapter 2, you had Simon there that made this statement. He said that Christ was appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. He knew that Christ would be a stumbling block. Some did not want to follow Christ, and they would not follow his teaching. And as John 6 points out, they did not continue to follow him. Even Jesus made this point. You remember the statement in Matthew chapter 10. There in in verses 34 through 39, Jesus is very blunt in saying that he is going to be a stumbling stone to some. He he says, I've come to divide the faithful from the unfaithful. And then he goes on. He points out in this, this passage, dividing the faithful from the unfaithful is... Is all-inclusive. It even gets as close as family. You divide in the family the faithful from the unfaithful. As the Lord says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man. Now, that's an interesting term. Actually, it's a military term that talks about Opposing armies drawing up in battle. And they set each other in formation. Christ says, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. How amazing is this? You've got war going on. You've got the metaphor from the the battlefield going on. And, And the Lord is the one that is setting the borders and the limits here. He points out later on, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who's found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. I really cannot think of anything that is worse than you have a unit out on the battlefield in a firefight, and things are looking really bad, and somebody decides this isn't what I want. I'm packing up, and I'm out of here. That just does, That's not right. You don't do that. That's exactly what Christ is saying here. You don't turn your back on me. I have set you. I have come to set you against others. He's going to be a stumbling stone. Instead of being a sanctuary to all people, those that are disobedient are going to be uncomfortable whenever it comes to the doctrine of Christ. They're going to be hypocritical in what they profess Christ became a problem for some and a hindrance to those with personal ambitions and so they go on the offensive against the righteous of God and Christ says blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me you're in my camp you're in my church And you're set in the battle. Don't give up. Don't become a traitor. Don't be a coward. All right, let's go on real quick. The next point, Christ is a light in Galilee. Isaiah prophesied this. In uh, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it says, He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, an interesting thing Isaiah said that the light is going to shine on Galilee. Well, in uh, the same same context there, chapters forty nine and sixty you have basically the same thing being repeated, but the point being is that Jesus ministry focused around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, he began in Capernaum, Mark, I mean Matthew chapter four and verse 14, and Capernaum is by the Sea of Galilee. How did that happen? Providentially, God had his plans, and his plan said that the teaching of the Savior would begin in Galilee. Providentially, Jesus was in Capernaum whenever he began to shine the great light. He became the great light. Uh, Luke 1 in verse 779. Let's go on real quick. Uh, The next point. uh, Isaiah prophesied that God's Spirit would be with Christ. Isaiah 11 and verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Well, when did that take place? We all know that. At the immersion of John in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 13, the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove. And this validated the fact that God was with Christ. Not only did the Spirit descend in the form of a dove, but there was a voice that spoke, and uh, that voice added validation to the the dove's appearance. We spoke a couple of times on Isaiah chapter 42, and there the uh, prophet said that Christ would be upheld by the Lord. And upheld means supported, encouraged. He was confirmed in that way. Well, whenever this boy spoke at his immersion and and it confirmed the deity of Jesus Christ, it authenticated his sonship, identified Christ as the son, uh, as the servant in Isaiah 42, and it offered the father's support. Let's look real quick. Isaiah said that uh, Christ was, or the coming Christ would be a descendant of David. Now, this is really interesting. Uh, the Old Testament said the Messiah must be from the tribe of Jesse. Isaiah 11 and, and verses 1 and 10 uh, talks about that. It said, A shoe will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Well, then for the Messiah to be true, he would have to be a descendant of David. Okay? Okay. And that's where it gets real interesting, because the Messiah would come, as we'll see in our next lesson, he'd be a prophet, a priest, and a king. Well, we'll see, the Bible says he couldn't be a priest and a king on earth, because only the priest would come from a certain tribe, and the kings would come from the tribe of Judah, according to the prophecy. And so here you have what appears to be so complicated. How is this going to take place? Well, this is where it really gets gets interesting. You have two genealogies of Jesus in the Bible. And I know a lot of folks think that they're boring. Why do we need to read them? But there is a specific reason for this. And uh, they're found in Matthew 1 and, and Luke chapter 3. In both of these genealogies, you have Jesus and, and his lineage that is traced back to David. But they're traced back through different ways. One is through the father and one is through the mother. All right, we know that. But why? Have you ever wondered why would we have to know the genealogy of Jesus traced both ways through his parents? Well, it goes back to this predictive prophecy that we're talking about right here. Legal right to the throne of David had to be established. We had to have absolute positive proof that Christ had legality to claim that he was the king of Israel. But then there was also a physical right. An alien couldn't do it. It had to be a, a true-blooded descendant of Abraham. had to be a Hebrew and Israelite. So here's where the genealogies comes into play to clear up this. The legal right to the throne of David is passed through Solomon's lineage to Joseph. Joseph, the father, as was supposed, the Bible says, of Jesus. But you see, nobody knew that except Joseph and Mary and and the Godhead. They knew that Jesus was not the son of, of Joseph, but he did in all legal aspects. He was the son, so that gave him legality to the position that he was the king. Well, what about the the physical right? How would he trace the blood lineage back? Well, the blood lineage had to go through his mother since she was the physical part of, of the uh, the child, and that that physical right, went through the throne of David, through the lineage of Nathan, to Mary's son, Jesus. You see, through Mary, Jesus could be legally, he could or physically uh, have the claim to be the, the Christ. Now, the interesting thing, he couldn't be a king on earth because Uh, The ancestry of Solomon was forbidden. No ancestor of Solomon would ever be king again. Go back to the uh, the time of Jeremiah, Jeconiah. No descendant of Jeconiah, who ultimately comes from Solomon's lineage, is ever going to sit on the throne of God is forbidden. Well, not on earth. So he can't sit on earth, but his kingdom is not of this world. Well, the predictive prophecy to David and to Solomon was literally fulfilled by the virgin birth of Jesus Christ to marry his mother and to Joseph as was supposed to be his father. Now, I know that's, that's really a, a quick and, and a brief explanation of it. But let me tell you, you want to, to find some real rewarding study. Look at the genealogy of Jesus. Let's go on real quick. The suffering of Christ. Was uh, was told by uh, Isaiah uh, the suffering we spoke last week about Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is very thorough in describing the suffering of the Savior. In uh, Isaiah 50 and verse 11, he says the Lord's back would be given to those that strike him. Isaiah spoke about the prophecy or the predictive prophecy. That the Savior would be despised, rejected, remain silent before accusers, bear, would uh, bear grief. He would be a vicarious sacrifice as the Lamb. He would intercede for his persecutors. All this is found in Isaiah chapter 53. You cannot read the account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ without thinking of Isaiah the prophet. Jesus Christ was flogged, chastised, he was insulted, ultimately killed on the cross. And not once did he utter a word against his tormentors, and he interceded on their behalf. Well, there are some other prophecies. We don't have time to talk about these, but here they are, just list them. He is prophesied as being head of the kingdom, as performing miraculous works, as uh be his work being prepared by John the the baptizer. He is identified as the shepherd and his preexistence is described as well. All right, let's look then at some amazing absurdities. If people, you know, if they if they really want to uh to deny predictive prophecies and to deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then they they really put themselves in in a foolish position. There are eight specific prophecies over which Jesus Christ had no control. He couldn't have arranged these. These were things that that were planned and and he followed the plan. They were planned hundreds of years. All right, here are some of the, the place of his birth. Who plans where they want to be born? You know, who plans that? The time of his birth, the manner of his birth, the betrayal by Judas, the manner of death, the people's reactions, the piercing, the burial place. All of these are eight specific uh, predictions that were made, and Jesus Christ fulfilled every bit of them. All right, let's go back to my wonderful journey into statistics. What's the probability of this? You have, you have these principles of probability that exclude a chance of fulfillment. It just doesn't happen this way. A house, the blueprint that is designed so that you have all the electrical circuits and, and you, have, you have all the plumbing works and you have all the... It just doesn't poof come into existence at this point. Somebody's planned that. They have meticulously gone through and they know because of their knowledge what to do in these things. Well, the science of probability has been attempted to, uh, to explain just eight of those prophecies that we talked about. And they said, if, if just, you know, what's the probability of somebody taking a wild haired guess on these and it's one in 1001 that it's going to take place? Well, what about the 322 prophecies taking place? Think of the probability of that. Now, these predictive prophecies uh, came about in two ways. Number one, they were given by the inspiration of God, or they were dreamed up by the prophets themselves. And 1 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy is a private interpretation. That is, Peter says, These guys just didn't sit around and dream this stuff up. So you've got one, but think about this. All right, let's just grant for a moment. All right, these prophets dreamed this up. Well, you've got 40 different writers now, and these 40 writers somehow come to the same conclusion. And not only do they come to the same conclusions, but you've got specific details that somehow are brought together, and you're telling me that's chance. That's a greater miracle of that chance happening than the supernatural miracle that actually caused it to take place. Either way, it admits a miracle. All right, uh, let's look at these. When your heart needs hope, remember the greatness of Isaiah's message. When you want to find absolute confidence, study. Uh, here is a, uh, another statement by Brother D. Uh, again, validating the number of years there. Predictive prophecies emphasize These things about God. His sovereignty is universal. His scripture has integrity. His blessings are offered. His son is the Messiah. And so, the sovereign control of history, the integrity of scripture, blessings available to mankind lead only to one conclusion. Jesus is the son of God. What are you going to do with Jesus? Have you submitted to him? If you submitted to him, are you set? For battle, are you holding the line? Are you following His commands? Do you distinguish between faithful and unfaithful? Jesus Christ is Son of God. Indisputable conclusion. All right, next week we'll have a special program, then we'll continue. Second uh, second week in February. Thank you all.